this evening. If, um, if you're waiting for something to appear on the screen, there'll be nothing there. Nothing on the screen this evening. Um, I don't have my usual point one, point two, point three, sometimes four, five, six. I just want to talk to you about that man that we just read about in Luke chapter 18. He was a real man who came face to face one day with the Lord Jesus Christ with a most amazing and significant question. We don't know what his name was. He's not mentioned ever again. We just read that he went away very, very sad. Having had the opportunity to be face to face with the one who holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades. Being face to face with the one in whom is life and who has the power over death. Having come face to face with the one who is the Lord of glory. And can you believe it? He went away sad. Seems remarkable. Well, let's have a look at him. You may, in your Bible, have a little heading over this section. And it might say the rich young ruler. Uh, Luke, in chapter 18, doesn't record him as being young, but Matthew certainly does. A young man, a rich man, powerful and influential man. And he's presented to us as a man who seems to have lived a relatively moral and upright life. Certainly in terms of how he has dealt in his life with other people. Now, just have a look at the list that Jesus puts to him. And of course, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that these things are taken straight out of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And the man replies, these are things that I have kept. In other words, here is someone who would say, if you asked him, I've lived a good life. Have you heard people say that? Maybe you think that about yourself. Generally, maybe there's been one or two hiccups along the way. But generally, yeah, I've lived a good life. I'm a good kind of person. We've just done a week of door-to-door, knocking on the doors on the streets out here, and we, we meet quite a few people who are, have that opinion of themselves and actually assume that most of us are in that position. I've, I've lived quite a good life. But what's that man trying to say when he answers Jesus? He's basically trying to say... I've never done anyone any harm. Well, not any real harm. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never taken what isn't mine. Well, nothing big, anyway. I'm generally truthful. I've I've never slandered anyone. I've never maligned anybody. Well, at least not publicly and not to their face. I'm generally 
quite a good person. But the Bible teaches that it's possible to have a life like that and yet still have a huge problem which causes an impassable barrier between you and God. A huge hurdle over which you cannot climb or jump. Even someone like this man who's able to say, I've lived a pretty good life. But he has a huge problem. And there's something that separates him from God. One of the things that's interesting of those things that Jesus quotes there in verse 20 from the Ten Commandments, Jesus only quotes from the second part of the Ten Commandments those commandments which relate to that young man's dealings with other people. Those commandments which deal with your dealings with other people, your relationships with others. What Jesus doesn't mention at all is the first four commandments. Jesus knows only too well where this young man stands in relation to those first four commandments, which elsewhere are summarised by Jesus as loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, the very fabric of your being, every inch of you, loves God intimately. And in so doing, means that everything that you do, everything that you do, is influenced and directed and guided by that all-consuming love that you have for God. And Jesus knows only too well that's not true of this young man. And I dare say there are many people here this, this evening and it's not true of you either. And if we pause to consider the details that are recorded in this little account that's recorded for us here, we actually see a picture unfolding about this young man. We can see that he was a man who lived for himself. He lived for himself. He wasn't rich. He was very rich. Maybe he was the richest man around. Maybe he was in the top 1% of richness. Maybe if the local Jerusalem Gazette produced an annual top 100 of the richest people in town, maybe this guy was very near the top. Maybe he was at the top. Generally, you don't get to be very rich the way this man is rich if you don't live for yourself. Generally speaking, people who get to be mega rich like this only do so because they live for themselves. Now, perhaps he inherited his wealth. Maybe he earned it in the business world. Let's be kind to him and say that this wealth has been acquired by legitimate and lawful means. After all, there's nothing in the story that suggests otherwise. 
But think about this. Whether it was inherited or whether he's worked for it, he does have a choice about what he does with it. He does have a choice about how he distributes that wealth. And he's distributed it to himself. Because despite his claims of goodness, this is a man who lives for himself. Now, am I being ungenerous or overly harsh or critical of him at this point? Well, I don't think I am. Because you only have to look at his reaction in verse 23 when Jesus suggests that he gives it away to the poor. He is absolutely devastated at such a suggestion. To be asked to take such a course of action. Wow. He wasn't expecting that. And there is no way he is prepared to even consider it. Because he's a man who lives for himself. He hasn't acquired all this wealth for others. It's his. No one else is getting it. And that's why he goes away so very, very sad. Now, his claim is that he's done no harm to others. But how many miserable lives might he have been able to relieve if he had not lived for himself and kept all his wealth to himself? If he's such a godly man. He claims he's never been unfaithful to his wife. But I wonder if we could really get under his skin. I wonder where his wife actually ranks amongst his possessions. Might be interesting to find out if we could really get under his skin. He says he's never taken what is his, what isn't his. But how much has he been willing to share with others what is his? Not very much, I think. His claims in verse 20, you see, begin to sound rather hollow. When we take a little time to examine what's revealed here. And surely, isn't this the heart of the man that Jesus can see? In addressing him and dealing with him in the manner that he does? Isn't this the heart that Jesus can see in this man when Jesus puts it to him that actually he needs to get rid of all of his wealth and give it to the poor? Isn't it the fact that Jesus actually is putting his finger right on the point where this man is going to hurt the most? Of course, that is exactly what Jesus is doing. The one who knows all of our hearts. And Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter with this man. You see, his life is a veneer of goodness. Yes, there is an absence of any really heinous crime. There is an absence of any, anything that we might describe as serious law-breaking. He's never done any of those really bad things. Can we find in him occasional acts of kindness? I'm sure we can. But none of those things count, cancel out the reality of what is going on beneath the surface of this man. None of those things cancel those issues out. And in many ways, you see, 
This man represents all of sinful humanity. Every single one of us. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't see how he can represent me. I'm not so young. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, I'm not a man. And all of you are thinking, well, I'm not very rich. So how can he represent me? Of course, the reality, the, the reality is there, there are no people here this evening who are rich like this man was rich. And if you go out and talk to people on the streets out there, there aren't many people out there who were rich like this man was rich. And yet, of course, if you go and speak to people out there, most of them wish they could be rich like this. And if they were rich like him, they would respond just like he did. Because they have exactly the same heart as him. You see... What Jesus is putting his finger on with this man's life is two key things. First of all, Jesus is pointing out that what was needed in this man was a change of affection. What do you love? This man needs a change of affection. This man just loves himself and his wealth. But he needs a change of affection. That's why Jesus says to him, sell up, give to the poor and exchange it for the treasures of heaven. This man needs a change of affection. He needs his, the object of his love to be redirected somewhere else. Who he loves and what he loves needs to change. A change of affection. And what is also needed in this man is a change of direction. Direction. Instead of living for himself, Jesus is challenging him to live for God. That's a complete change of direction for this man. So there's these two things, you see. These are the two issues that Jesus puts his finger on with this challenge that he puts to him. You need a change of affection and you need a change of direction. Are you willing to do that? And he isn't. he isn't. He isn't willing to do either of those things. And he walks away very sad. In the very next chapter, the very next chapter in Luke's Gospel, there's a story of another very rich man. Now, I'm not sure who was richer than who. But they were both right up there. In Luke chapter 19, there's another rich man and we're told his name. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, those who reject God remain unnamed. But those who choose God are named. We saw that in the story of Ruth with the man who would not take on his role as the kinsman redeemer, and he remained unnamed. But Boaz, we know. And here, the man who rejects Christ, he remains unnamed. But Zacchaeus, we know his name, because he did what that was right and good. But Zacchaeus, of course, if you know about Zacchaeus, he was a completely different kettle of fish. He was a tax collector. He was more than that. He was the chief tax collector. He was the head honcho 
And uh, tax collectors were cheats, swindlers, devious con men. And he, admit, he admits as much in verse 8 of chapter 19. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, the Pharisees, they were the, the ones who considered themselves to be religious amongst the Jews because of their good works. Uh, whenever they wanted to uh, pick out an example of something that typified a sinner, they often pointed to tax collectors. The, the, the lowest of the low, the really sinful ones over there. Uh, and Zacchaeus was a really good one, very rich man. And so he did have something in common with the rich young ruler. He was rich, but he also had something else in common. Here is another man who lived for himself. He really did. Great was his wealth. And let's remind ourselves of the story. Some of you might not be familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. So we'll just read a few verses. And it's in chapter 19. And it's at the beginning of that chapter. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, that's everyone else who, like this rich young ruler, thought they were perfectly good and decent and upright. When they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, because he knew he'd done that plenty of times, I restore four times, four times. Did you see it? Did you see the change? Did you see the change of affection in the life of Zacchaeus? He voluntarily begins to do what the rich young ruler could not do. And Jesus doesn't tell him to do it. He just does it. Why? Because a change of affection has flooded into the soul of Zacchaeus. He's not the man he was a few hours ago. Something radical has changed. There's been a great change of affection in the heart of this man. You see, Zacchaeus suddenly has stopped living for himself. And this is further demonstrated by his change of direction. Did you spot the change of direction? In the story? Something other than giving away his money and making restitution with those who he'd swindled? Did you see the change of direction? What did the rich young ruler call Jesus? Good teacher. 
What does Zacchaeus call Jesus? Lord. Lord. Master. There's been a change of direction in the heart of Zacchaeus. Just just while they were having tea together. And he's walked back out of the house and he's a changed man. He's not living for himself anymore. He's living for Christ. Lord. What on earth has happened? What has caused this change in Zacchaeus that did not happen in the rich young ruler? Well, we didn't read verse 9, but we'll read it now because there's the answer. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus has been saved. He's been saved. That which was lost has been sought and found. Now, did you note the question that was asked by the rich young ruler right at the beginning of chapter 18? Or at the beginning of the story in verse 18. What shall I do? Do you notice that? What shall I do? Asks the man who lives for himself. What shall I do? What shall I do? That's the man who lives for himself. Just tell me what I need to do. Zacchaeus came with no such question. In fact, it was Jesus who called him. And Zacchaeus simply welcomed Christ. Salvation has come to this house. How did salvation get there? Where did this salvation come from? Jesus brought it. Jesus brought it to him. See, Zacchaeus was visited by Christ. And Zacchaeus was changed by Christ. Salvation has come to this house. Now, what does that mean? What does that entail? Well, I can tell you for certain, it at least entails this. Number one, Zacchaeus saw his sin. Now, maybe he knew deep down that he's always been a sinner. But he saw it in a fresh new way today. And he saw his sin in a way that he'd never seen it before. And he saw what his sin was doing to him. And he saw where his sin was leading him. And in Jesus, he saw his saviour. In Jesus, he saw the one who could save him. And in Jesus, he he recognised the only one who could save him. He saw the greatness of his sin and he embraced Christ. Zacchaeus was born again. We can be certain of that because we've only got to look at how he has been made new by the power of God. 
the apostles would later say that Christian believers are those who have become a new creation in Christ. There is no other explanation for what has happened to Zacchaeus. He's become a new creation by the power of God. And this new reborn man has repented of his sins before Christ. And in turn, Christ has visited him with a new heart and a new nature. And the mind of Zacchaeus has been transformed. Salvation has come to this house. Confession and repentance of sin. And a turning to Christ. And an embracing of him as saviour. Are you saved? Has salvation come to you? And in this, of course, there is a sense in which Zacchaeus has done nothing. It was Jesus who did it all. But now that he has been changed, Zacchaeus can't do nothing. You were here this morning. This takes us a little bit back to what we were looking at this morning. Because he's a saved man, he can't do nothing. Because he's a saved man, God has now put this new will inside of him. And God has now empowered him to do that which he ought to do. Because he's saved and changed. God does that when he comes into the life of a sinful man or woman. That's what being a Christian is all about. And here's an example of it in Zacchaeus. On account of what Jesus has done for him and in him, Zacchaeus has had a complete change of affection and a complete change of direction in his life. And Christ has done that. And here in Zacchaeus is a man who immediately stopped living for himself. Now, did he immediately become a perfect follower of Christ? No. But he immediately stopped living for himself. Because that's how immediate the change is. And that's how big the change is. That's the power of God. It can do that. It can change a man like Zacchaeus, like that. And it did. That's real saving faith. That's the real power of God at work in the life of a sinful man. He's immediately ceased to live for himself. And here is a man, because he's a saved man, now sees the dishonesty of his ways. Here's a man who now sees all the great harm that he's done to all the people who he swindled out of their hard-earned money. And he's filled with shame and alarm at how he's lived. And he longs now to do whatever he can and try and make it all right. Because all his affections have changed and the whole direction of his life has changed. And it's Christ who's done that. It couldn't happen with the rich young ruler. Because he rejected Christ. He refused to be changed. He had no desire to be changed. But here in Zacchaeus, here is a man whose desire is to do that which pleases God now, not what pleases himself. Here is a man who's now content that he has this heavenly treasure, which now is in Christ. That was offered to the rich young ruler by Jesus, and he rejected it. Zacchaeus has embraced it. I'll have that. I'll have that. 
I'm going to get rid of that which I can't keep anyway. And I'm going to take hold of that which could never be taken from me. I'm going to take hold of Christ. And the evidence is in what he does next as he chooses to rectify in his life as best he can everything that has been so terribly, terribly wrong. That which he has been living for, he gives away because now he's living for Christ. Why hold on to that which you cannot keep when you can receive that which you can never lose? But you cannot do both. You cannot keep holding on to the things of this world and think you can take hold of Christ at the same time. Either the things of this world are your Lord and Master or Christ is your Lord and Master. It cannot be both. The words of Jesus, you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to choose. Both of these men have made their choice. Both of them. And note the order in which all this has happened. For the rich young ruler, what shall I do to be saved? For Zacchaeus, I can now see what I must do because I've been saved. I trust you can see the vast difference here in these two men. And back in chapter 18, we read these words before. When Jesus saw that this rich young ruler became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, well, who then can be saved? Because they actually understood. You know, we... We've all got things that are dear to us that we hold on to that we refuse to let go of. Who then can be saved? The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Zacchaeus is the proof of that verse. Just in the very next chapter, that which was impossible for the rich young ruler is not impossible for God in the life of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is completely transformed. God has changed him. A change of affection. A change of direction. If you're not a Christian, you need it, but you on your own can't produce it. Maybe like that rich young ruler, your claim is, well, I'm really basically quite a good person. But Jesus would put his finger on your heart and say, well, despite all your claims, despite all your protests, I can truly see what's going on. And I see in you someone who really, when we strip away everything, you really just live for yourself. But God is able to conquer hearts like that. And our prayer before this service and our prayer will continue after this service is that for those of you who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ that he will impress these things upon your heart too that he will bring his salvation to you just like he brought it to Zacchaeus and if you can see 
that you need what Zacchaeus got that day, then just turn to the one in whom it is possible. Turn to Christ and ask him to do his work in you that you cannot do for yourself. And in repentance of your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus that today, even this evening, salvation might come to you.